Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Gabriel Bergmoser is an author, playwright, screenwriter and international Emmy Award winner. His latest novel, The Hunted, is set to be released in 2020 and is already in active development in Hollywood. In conversation today, we discuss Gabe's creative journey from stage to page, the costs of early success, and take a very personal dive into the doubts and delusions of pursuing a creative life. Hello, Gabe. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, James. You grew up in country Victoria, but your life, your creative life, seems to have taken off when you won a scholarship, a drama scholarship at the age of 15, and you moved to a boarding school in Melbourne. But you went there as an actor, not as a writer. Did this seem to be one of the first instances of creative competition you had to experience? Um, luckily, not so much in that... Um in, I guess in my early years, I was like fairly deluded into thinking acting would be my thing. And the only real reason I had to think that was that, you know, I did a lot of youth drama back in Mansfield. Um, I did all the school plays and everything. But the only thing that really qualified me for those and the only thing that I guess led to anybody kind of commenting on my performances afterwards was the fact that like I was a little bit more effusive than most of your Mansfield secondary college people, but also I was one of the few people who didn't walk on with a script in my hands during the productions. So I think that alone led to like a lot of people saying, oh man, you were so good afterwards, which led to me thinking, oh man, I'm so good, which led to the going for a drama scholarship. And so like two different schools rejected me before Caulfield took me. And they only took me because the head of drama at Caulfield, Joachim Machos, a man with and he wouldn't mind me saying this, but a man with like very dark sensibilities appreciated the fact that I, my audition piece was the final speech from Psycho. Right. You know, that she wouldn't harm a fly <laughs> thing. So like I'm sitting there at 15, like, you know, doing the straight jacket, Norman Bates doing his mother's <laughs> voice, all of that. And so, so you know, for, for that reason, like, I, you know, I kind of went in there thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to be this actor. And I had all these ambitions of going to NIDA and everything. But I'd always been writing in the background. You know, I was writing my first novel I finished when I was 14, which was a horrible like silence of the lamb saw rip off like the most yeah anyway you can you can imagine how how uh how high quality that would have been but what happened was that there was this kind of slow slow like transition that was never like writing and acting were in competition in my mind i was like i could do both it'll be fine but there was a slow transition where i realized at caulfield very quickly because caulfield had a very intense drama program that a lot of the other people who i was doing drama with were genuinely talented and I was not. Right. And it was just like noticing that being kind of loud and moving your hands around a lot didn't really cut it when you were up against, you know, people who could really bring genuine like emotional depth and people who went on to study at NIDA and went on to study at VCA and went on to get a ton of acting work. And, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, I guess, difficult to realize that or to sort of, you know, it wasn't like I made a clear decision, I just sort of started writing more because like I was, the more I wrote, the more I was like, I think I'm getting better. And the more I acted, the more I was like, I'm not getting better. Right. And then, so I, I still probably even went into, um, into sort of university, still thinking that acting would be something I would definitely actively pursue. But it was probably by the end of my first year at university that acting just sort of naturally slipped away and writing became my 100% focus. So it wasn't though that you were writing things for yourself. You no, know? no, not at all. Right. I mean, I think like there was probably a bit of a misconception, even when I did my first play, my first sort of independently produced play with Bitten by Productions in Melbourne Reunion, in which I played the lead. I think there probably was an assumption for people at the time that 
that was like, you know, me being like, oh, I'm putting myself on stage and everything. The reality is that I just couldn't find anybody who wanted to do the play. Right. And like, I didn't want to play the lead. I was actively trying to like court friends because like, I didn't want to hold auditions because I was so insecure about the script that I was like, I don't want like real actors coming in and, you know, telling me, ah, no, look, this is, this is actually not very good. But, um, but yeah, so for, so for that reason, like, you know, I, by, by that point in my life, I couldn't wait to get off stage. So, so no, funnily enough, I think people would make that assumption, but, um, but no, I, I was certainly not necessarily interested by the time I started writing theater in, in getting back on stage again, because I knew what good actors looked like and I knew that I was not one of them. Right. In 2015, you go off and you do your master of screenwriting yes. at the Victorian College of Arts, VCA. And during that period of time, you're tutored by Peter Matesi. Now, Peter yes. Matesi is one of Australia's leading scriptwriters. He's also worked extensively throughout the UK on EastEnders, Holby City, and here locally on Neighbours and um, Home and Away, etc. The Heights as well, the new, the um, new ABC the new Matchbox one. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. Um, so what did you get from Peter and that experience of being tutored by someone like that when you're at that point of not only studying script writing but also trying to now write in two different forms, which is for theatre and for screen? Peter Matesi was I, – I feel like I owe Peter a huge apology because I think I was probably an incredibly annoying student at VCA. For, I mean, for a couple of reasons. Like I, I came into VCA with – you know, the background of having done so much independent theatre and sort of, you know, having the freedom to to do what I wanted to do and to tell the stories I wanted to tell. And when I first went to VCA, my idea was basically that my final project would be a filmed version of Reunion. Basically just, you know, because at the time I was very obsessed with Before Sunrise, Before Sunset. And I was kind of thinking, well, you know, I can just have four people in a room talking for a film. That can work. Right. And, you know, at VCA, a big part of it was teaching us how to think visually, teaching us how to tell a story without an overabundance of dialogue. Basically stuff that seemed very at odds with what I'd learned doing theatre. Well, it's certainly at odds with a Linklater film as well. Well, absolutely, yeah. But I mean, you know, the, the brilliant thing about Linklater films is that they do have all of that classic cinematic structure. They're just very cleverly deployed. But at the time, I didn't realise that. And Peter, I think, was kind of the perfect tutor because whereas, like, I butted heads with some of the other tutors at BCA who bluntly were just like, no, nah, that's not going to work. No, nah, you can't do that. No, nah, that doesn't fit into three-act structure. No, nah, you can't do that. And that, that, like, frustrated me because at the time I was like, I'm an artist, I don't compromise. And, you know, I've, eventually I think after a couple of, you know, plays went on that didn't do very well and that I realized, hey, if I'd actually followed what VCA taught me, that might have been a bit better. You know, I sort of lost, you know, the ego I went into VCA with to a degree. But I think Peter, Peter was very stealthy at getting to me because while I flip-flopped around in ideas and while I kind of like clung on to my barely formed sensibilities, Peter has this way of just sort of looking at you saying, yeah, but why? And he, he doesn't do it in a remotely aggressive way. He doesn't do it in a way that allows for any sort of pushback or defensiveness. He'll just sort of look at you and just say, but why are you doing that? Or why is the character doing that? Or why do you think that's a good idea? And what difference did that make to you? Well, because he does it in such a gentle, genuinely questioning way, and he sort of will frame everything like it's a genuine question. It's not posed as a challenge. And I think when you are somebody who, I mean, you know, you might be innately defensive because it comes from a place of insecurity, which it absolutely did for me at that time. A challenge is something that like, it's, it's that old thing of, you know, if you step on my foot, I'm going to yell. If I feel like you're telling me off or you're telling me I can't do that or whatever, I'm going to react and be like, well, fuck you, I can. Whereas Peter didn't allow for that because it was just him saying, but why? And because of that, I had to answer the question. And because I had to answer the question, I had to think about it. And because I had to think about it, I slowly started to realize, oh, I don't think I'm right here. Like, I actually don't think I've thought this through properly. 
and one thing I've learnt about storytelling in general is that you you 100% have to have a reason for everything you do. You can't just put your vaguely thought out artistic notions on the page and assume that people will like it. And Peter was very, very clever at kind of getting getting to the core of that in a very gentle way. And, you know, he wouldn't let things slide. He wouldn't sort of say, oh, that's okay. He would just sort of keep asking you questions. And through those questions, you eventually are forced to approach your project from so many different angles that what you end up with is fairly sound. And, you know, I, I guess like when I think back to it, you know, I think initially I would sort of flip flop and throw other ideas in there and say, oh, well, no, this is, this works because of this and this works because of this and this works because of this. And, and I think, you know, Peter maybe found that a little bit frustrating, but, um, but eventually I think I did reach a place where I became quite open to his suggestions and I became quite open to what he was throwing in there. And, and ultimately, you know, I mean, I credit Peter to such an enormous degree to the, with, with the fact that I went on to win the Usnov and that happened with the script that I worked on with Peter. And I remember emailing him about that after the fact and just saying, you know, I need to thank you for everything. And Peter was just like, all I did was ask you questions. He's like, you did the work, but all I did was ask you questions. And I'm like, yeah, but if you hadn't asked those questions in the way that you did, I wouldn't have approached the story in the way that I did. So I learned so much from him. So let me ask you this. Do you still ask yourself those questions when you are writing today? Not in the process of actually writing, because I think it's kind of like one of the things that I found really difficult at VCA was you know, when we were being taught about structure and theme and all of that, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to, I don't want to go into writing a story worried about where my midpoint is or worried about, you know, my all is lost moment being at the right point or any of that stuff, because I found it so creatively restricting. And, you know, I was like, I, I kind of just want to let the story unfold and, and sort of find that stuff as I go. But, you know, the, the best sort of bit of advice I got, one of the best bits of advice I got in VCA, which was from, from Karen Altman, was write the first draft as though you're in love, write the second draft as though you're in charge. And once I heard that, I was like, that kind of gives me a license to not necessarily think about that stuff when I'm first putting something on the page, not necessarily ask those difficult questions at first, just kind of let the story unfold in a largely organic way. But then I think when you do the second draft or the edits, that's when you start asking those questions. That's when you, excuse me, um, that's when you start asking, you know, is this the best way to tell this story? Is this, does this make sense? Does this, and I had to do that with the Hunted in a huge degree, like going through and sort of, you know, I'd thrown stuff in there in the first draft where I was like, oh yeah, that'll work. That'll make sense. That'll do that. But then when I did the second pass, that was when I went back and I did the Peter Matesi method of being like, why are they doing that? Why are they thinking that? Why are they reacting that way? Are they just doing it because I want them to, to get the story to a certain place or are they doing it because it actually makes logical sense, which inevitably makes for a more well thought through story. And is that also why perhaps when you're working with Peter, I think you, you originally started with Reunion. That was going to be yes, your masterwork. Yes. And then you changed midway through and w- reverted back to an old idea, which you had previously worked up as both a, a novel, self-published novel, and a play, which is Windmills. Yes. And then you converted that into your masterwork for, for the master's program. Is, is that yes. what happened? Yeah. So I spent, what happened was that I spent the first year working on Reunion and I, I briefly flipped into a different idea that was essentially about a, um, a, a broke uni student moonlighting as a low-rent hitman to make rent. And, you know, I I went into that because I thought, oh, well, this is original, this is different, this is fine, this is before Barry came out. But, um, but you know, I then sort of realised that partway through that I had nothing to say with that story. It was just a funny idea. There was nothing deeper I was trying to get to. There was nothing particularly creatively involving about it. It was just an idea that I thought was cool and original. And so 
I went back to Reunion because Reunion was a personal story and there was a lot that I wanted to say and explore and I guess sort of exercise with that. But what happened was that when I got to the end of my first year at VCA and I submitted it and they came back with all these notes and these fe- this feedback and everything, you know, in theory to apply to a, a second draft in the next semester, I started writing that second draft and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't, I don't have anything left to say with this story. I'm completely burnt out with it. Like, it's gone through so many different versions, you know, from the play to the various drafts of the screenplay. And that's not even touching on the treatments and outlines and stuff we had to do. And, you know, when I started writing the next draft, I was like, I can't feel the characters anymore. I can't see what I'm trying to say. I'm not, I'm no longer feeling the emotions that I'm trying to get to the bottom of. And I think a big part of it as well was that like the place I was in my life when I wrote Reunion in 2013, I think I wrote the first draft in 2012, I was no longer in by 2015. Yeah, so so your life had moved on and therefore yeah. the story needed to. Because I've heard you say that you can't write about things that don't matter to yes. you. Yes, So you're obviously very emotional, emotionally connected to the work you're putting together. Is that correct? Well, I think you have to be, really, because, like, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a novel in 2012 right after I finished what became the self-published Windmills that was, like, basically just a YA um, apocalyptic thriller that, you know, was was something that, in retrospect, I'm like, was not a bad idea and given that that was around the Hunger Games boom might have actually had a chance of being published. But I got to the end and I was like, there's nothing, there's no me in this. Like it, it was a fun story and it was easy enough to put together and maybe it was something I needed to write to sort of cleanse my palate after windmills. But, but there was no me in it and I had no passion to kind of continue it. There was nothing emotionally involving for me that I wanted to say. And that was kind of where I landed when I started doing redoing Reunion in early 2015. I was like, I, I just can't anymore. Like reunion came out of a place of being very lost after high school, kind of coming out of a time when like I was in boarding school, my friends were my family, they were my life. And then sort of leaving high school and going to university and not being with those friends anymore and not kind of having that close knit safety net I used to have. And reunion basically was a story that came from a yearning to have that back. And by 2015, you know, I'd moved on in my life. I had different concerns. There was other stuff that was sort of, you know, eating at me creatively and for that reason it was like I, I just don't think I can and adds that the fact that you've written a story that many times like eventually it does get to a point where you can't you you just physically can't muster the same passion you had originally but that's interesting to me because you've just said there you know when you've rewritten rewritten that story so many times now windmills is an example of something you have rewritten many times and I think yes. you're probably even still working on it today in a potential tv series yeah. at, at this one point. version or another yeah yeah it's something you're obviously not going to let go of so i'd like to stay with that for the moment which is that in 2015 you produce it as your masterwork, which is developed as a pilot script yes, for vca yes. it is then entered into the the competition which ultimately wins you the 2015 Sir Peter Ustinov Television Scriptwriting Award and you are presented with the award at the International Emmys. So this takes you to the US. Now at that moment that you get that notification that you've won and you're on a plane to New York and then you're going to have meetings in LA, where's your head at? Oh God, it's, it's one of those things where when I first found out I'd won the award, there was, and you know, I, I say this and I think people think I'm joking, but there was a very big part of me that honestly thought they'd made a mistake. Like there was, I mean, I, I think I remember um, the day I got my tickets for the Usenov, the tickets were booked in the name of the head of judging at the International Emmys, Nathaniel Brendel, who's still a really good friend of mine. And 
I remember seeing, you know, they emailed me the tickets and it was like one ticket for Nathaniel. Oh, it was booked in the name. It said Nathaniel Brendel. I didn't know who Nathaniel was at the time. I was like, oh, he's the real winner. They've, <laughs> they've called me by mistake. He's the real winner. Because there was part of me that genuinely thought it was a mistake. Oh, that's true. And there was part of me even sitting on the plane because it didn't feel real. Like, how could it feel real? Because the thing is, you know, you you, you aim for this your whole life or you, you want recognition. And, and I always did, you know, I always, I always wanted to be, a, you know, I always wanted to, I might not have always wanted to be a writer as such, but I always wanted to be in that creative sphere and be making money and finding success and finding validation in that. And by 2015, you know, I was, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew that was the only thing I wanted and that was the only thing I wanted to work towards. And then it's like, I mean, somebody, I don't know who it was, but somebody said, you know, there's almost nothing as terrifying as a dream that you actually achieve because then you're like, what the fuck do I do now? And when the Usnov happened, it was almost like I, I couldn't like, it was so hard to wrap my head around the fact that I had that gold stamp. You know, I had I had the license now to call myself an award-winning writer. And I was going to the Emmys and I was meeting, you know, hugely important people and famous people and all of that. And, and you know, it, it, I don't think it really, I don't think there was ever like a crystallizing moment where I was like, holy shit, that happens. I think I went there in a sort of, in a bit of a haze. I kind of, stumbled through that weekend being kind of like, you know, with a massive grin on my face, unable to believe that any of this was actually happening. And then maybe like, you know, a, a year or so after that, it kind of quietly clicked into place that that was a reality. But I don't think there was ever like a moment where I was like, wow, this is real because it couldn't be at the time. This is a line I was going to read back to at some other stage as we, we move on to some of your other written work, but it seems very pertinent right now, which is a quote from one of your play, Springsteen which was very successful for you in 2017, written in 2016. But the line is, you see the thing nobody tells you about getting what you want is that once you do, you start to question why you want it. And that seems to be relevant to what you were just saying then, which is this sort of, you got exactly what you thought you'd always aspire to, which is this international recognition. You've got meetings and you may not have known what to do with it right there and then. Of course, yeah. And and that's like... Springsteen was written at a place, you know, about a year or so after the Usenov, when I was starting to think, you know, because things hadn't ignited in the way I thought they would after I won that award. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, I just wasn't ready. I didn't have enough material. And part of Springsteen was that sort of insecurity of thinking, you know, did I squander my chance or did I get what I wanted? And then after the fact, pretty much what you said, realized I didn't know what to do with it. Because, you know, I mean, my whole life, I'd been driven by this nebulous idea of what making it was, or that, you know, I would make it and I would go to America and I would, you know, be on the red carpet with a suit and I would be, but I, I didn't know what that looked like, you know, like I knew, I knew in a vague sense, you know, I wanted to be in that sphere, but I didn't know what the, I think one of the lines of Springsteen is maybe uh, something about, you know, you don't think about what the day-to-day -day process of living that dream is. And, and I didn't, and I didn't know how, and I kind of got there and left afterwards. And it was suddenly just like, you know, this is great. You know, I mean, doors are open now that I thought were closed previously. People are suddenly interested in talking to me, but I don't know how to deal with that. And I don't know what my life looks like going forward. And, and, you know, it was roughly around that point where I started to realize, and this is very much what the Springsteen script was about. It was around that point where I started to realize that I had been so single-mindedly focused on what I'd wanted that in a lot of ways I hadn't been giving adequate attention to, you know, my friends and my family and my loved ones, you know, the people who had supported me and the people who'd been there for me. And Springsteen has a line in his autobiography, which um, I didn't quote in the play because I didn't want to get sued. But, you know, he talks so much about how 
that was kind of his approach for so much of his youth. Like, you know, during the Born to Run Dance in the Edge of Town era, you know, he was single for years because all he ever did was focus on his music. Mm. And then he talks about reaching a place in his mid-30s where he, um, what was it? Like he went on a road trip and stopped at this town and there was like a town fate going on or a dance. And he was watching all these couples dancing and he just sat there and started crying because he realized that's life. That's life right there. And I don't have that. And I've been so focused on achieving this dream. And it's like, okay, now I have money and I have validation. I have success and I have all of that, but I don't have any of what really matters. And that's when he kind of says this line that has stuck with me ever since, which is what you need to remember is that life trumps art always. And so after Yusnov, I think I did sort of realize, okay, well, hey, this isn't everything. Like, you know, I do need to kind of reconnect with my friends. I do need to reconnect. I do need to sort of give back a bit. And I do need to remember that, you know, it's not all about just achieving that dream. Do, do you think you actually did make that leap or is it something that's taken a lot of time? Because oh, you, seem to, you seem to have struggled a little bit with, with both the writing of Springsteen, which is exactly to this point of the pursuit of excellence at all costs, but you've also displayed in your own writing on your blog over the last couple of years, there was at one occasion around the time of Springsteen or a little bit later where you expressed a sense of loss for those creatives you had come up the ranks with who yeah, had decided yeah. to move on with their lives and give up their creative pursuits. And you you wrote about the fact that you have previously always espoused the necessity of commitment to your art at the expense of everything else, which is exactly what you're saying here. So was this a real challenge for you to come to terms with? In Look, in some ways. Um, I mean, the, the reality is often... I think often if you're writing about something and you're making a statement like I did in Springsteen, you're making that statement because you haven't 100% mastered it yet. So when I wrote Reunion, for example, just to jump back to that for a second, it was basically all about a character learning to let go of his past, learning to sort of say, okay, well, I had that time and that was wonderful, but that's not where I am anymore. But at the time, I was totally, that was what I knew I had to do, but I was totally incapable of actually making that leap. And Springsteen was a bit the same. Like It came from that realization of... I have to be willing to, I have to be, I have to recognize there's more to my life than just my art. But it probably took until about mid 2018 when I think I wrote that blog, when I reached a point where several potentially hopeful things or several big things that I was kind of hinging a lot on fell apart in the space of like two weeks. And it was like probably the lowest point I'd ever reached. Where I was just sitting there like staring at my roof being like, I, I don't actually know what the point is anymore. Like I genuinely, what, like what if, I've put so much into this, but I don't regret that because I think you do need to put that work in to achieve anything in the sphere of success. But it was the first time that I'd kind of genuinely thought back to those friends of mine who I'd come up with, who I'd been so wowed by the talent and the ability of who had kind of moved into other things, who had, you know, gone for the office jobs or, you know, decided to foreground their relationship or decide to have kids or whatever and not kind of pursue their arts. There was always part of me that, you know, I mean, it's a horrible thing to admit now because, I mean, what right do you ever have to judge somebody else's life choices? But, you know, there's always that part of me when I was kind of younger that was thinking, oh, that's so sad that they've given up. You know, that's so sad. But then when I think that moment struck, I looked back and I was like, it's not at all. Like, maybe to a degree, but it's also not all there is, right? Like, but was it, Do you think it was that you were begrudging the fact that they had got on with their lives or that they had not come with you on the journey? I wouldn't say begrudging. I think it was more like... Or disappointment, perhaps. Yeah, I think it was, it was honestly, and this is where, like, you know, that, that, I guess, arrogance comes in, which is, you know, it was disappointment really on their behalf without ever really thinking about how they felt about it. 
And and I do maybe that's maybe that's not quite fair because like, you know, one of the people who I was obliquely talking about in that blog was a friend of mine who you know I always saw as always saw as like even a, maybe even a bit of a muse, but like somebody who was very creatively driven and was very passionate. And I remember her once saying to me when we were doing a play together in twenty fourteen, I want to say, her talking about you know she was working this office job in the city. And how every morning before work, she would go and she would stand. She would go and she would stand outside the theater where actors were going in for like Wicked, I think it was that was on at the time. But mm. actors were going in for some musical, and she told me how she would stand there and she would just cry because you know what she really wanted was to be with them. But she was stuck with this office job. She was in a relationship with a partner who she had to support, and you know basically she had all of these like you know life problems that she had to worry about, and you know she put dealing with those first. Whereas, you know, I was somebody who was quite happy to be the broke student, quite happy to, you know, scrounge and eat me goreng and do all of that while I kind of pursued what I was pursuing. And in my mind, I was like, well, no, you have to do that. You have to do that without ever thinking, well, no, it's okay to think differently, right? But I, I do believe that she's, you know, she's now in a place where she's quite happy with the choices she's made. She's quite happy where she is. And, you know, I 100% respect that. But at the time, you know... I was kind of thinking, that's so sad, you know, that's so sad. And, you know, for years afterwards, I was kind of like, oh, you know, she's such a tragic case of somebody who's given up. But now I'm like, no, no, you know, by all accounts, she's really happy and everything's really good. She just sort of realized that she wanted to, you know, that life came first, which it does. Ultimately, it always does. It's just the question of how much you are willing to give up for the art before you start to realize that my life needs some attention as well, you know? And that's that's different for everyone because art can bring you to a breaking point. Like, and it almost did last year. Well, I got to a point where I was kind of like, okay, you know, I make barely any money. My creative projects are falling through. I don't, you know, I don't have enough time for my girlfriend. I don't have enough time for my friends. You know, I'm, and, you know, I've, I've been trying for a long time to give more time there. But at the same time, I was like, I'm now in, you know, a, a long-term stable relationship. And I'm like, at a certain point, like, how much bullshit can I expect her to give up, to put up with, you know? Like, how much can I expect her to just sort of be willing to, you know, give me a little bit of financial support or be willing to do this or be willing to do this or be supportive or be okay with me, you know, focusing all my attention into this if I'm not actually getting anywhere with it. And that's a genuine choice I think creators have to make when, when, you know, you start hitting that point where life and art start vying for your attention, you have to kind of decide what way the scale is going to tip. And I was very, very lucky in that it wasn't very long after I hit that moment and I sort of said, I'm still going to keep going at this because I have to, because otherwise, you know, whether it's a fallacy of sunk costs or not, I have to keep pursuing this. And it was only like six months after that that like everything happened with The Hunted. Yeah, so, so, so let's look at this this period of your life that we're talking about here because it's a really interesting four years of, of unique experiences, which is that 2015 to 2017, you are absolutely seem to be on this streak, which is you win the Peter Ustinov Award, you go to the US, everybody tells you they're in the Bergmosa business, that they want to work with you. And as you said, nothing really came from it yeah. at that initial point. But then you also, in 2016, you publish the first of the Boone Shepherd novels. Yes. And Boone Shepherd was a, a character who you'd created back when you were in high school, who'd been with you for pretty much your whole life. And it became a three-book um, series. And yes. And terrifically well-read. This is your first sort of breakthrough, which this is a great opportunity for you. Your plays are in place. They're going well. You're getting great reviews. Springsteen's a hit creatively. I'm assuming you're, you're thinking, this is it. We're on the run. Well... <sighs> Yes and no um, is the is the short answer because on the one hand, yeah, things. I mean, things were going really well. I mean, Boone Shepherd came out, but I mean, even even like Boone Shepherd, you know, 
in retrospect, like it, it did so well given that it was published by a tiny independent publisher with like a minuscule budget. And now that I look back at them, like the fact that we got three of them, the first one did well, they, the first and second one only just did well enough to justify the third. And I think realistically, they probably did as was they probably did better than could have been expected given, you know, the fact that there was no massive marketing budget, given the fact that there was, you know, no huge amount of buzz around them or anything. Like the fact that the first one was nominated for the Readings Prize really helped. And the fact that we had the Sans Pants Radio connection kind of putting it out there to a worldwide audience did help a huge amount as well. But I guess, you know, during those years, it was it was a weird mix in that, like, you know, after the use of what, what, I guess, challenged me a bit was the realization that, I mean, when I was over there, I had so many meetings. Like, you know, I, I met with this major publisher in New York. I met with major producers in LA. Like I had days in LA where I was like going from one meeting to another to another with, you know, some of the biggest and most successful uh film and TV producers in the world. And it's very hard for you to walk out of that and not think, I'm set. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> going to happen. You know, I'm about to become the toast of LA. Everybody wants me. Everybody's going to be interested. And then to realize they're not. Yeah. To kind of come back and be like, what, whatever happened, like, I don't know. It, it felt there was a part of me that seriously felt, and it took me a long time to admit this to myself, but there was a part of me that felt, even though Boone did well, even though Movie Maintenance and Sans Pants Radio kind of gave me my first taste of sort of having a following and having an audience and, you know, being somebody who people were interested in the the life and career of. But like, and, and the plays were doing well and Bitten By was kind of going from strength to strength. But if I'm being 100% honest, and I mean, it feels so, it feels so like, so egotistical to even like say it. But at the time, you know, I, I wanted more, like I expected more, you know. I, I really thought after Yusinov, I was going to be, on the red carpet every other week. You know, I was gonna be living in LA. I was gonna, you know, be this gigantic success story. And instead it was like, things changed, things got better, but honestly more because of Sans Pants Radio than because of the Usinov. The Usinov gave me credibility, but it was it was movie maintenance and Sans Pants that gave me a platform and, you know, got my work out to people. So is this also because in America, no one says no in the room? You never have a bad meeting in LA. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> one of the, it, it's a Hollywood truism that is very true. And I learned that after LA, you know, I walked out of every meeting thinking, yes, it's gonna happen. Like this is, they're gonna want this, they're gonna want this. But the, the truth is all I really had when I went to LA was windmills. Yeah. Like all I really had that like they, that people wanted to read was windmills. And they were like, what else do you have? I had a bunch of plays. I had Boone Shepard which was too weird to, you know, ever get like serious film attention. And that was it. And so, you know, I, I didn't have like, I didn't really even really have like other concepts I could throw in there. So like, I, I think that in, in retrospect, you know, I probably wasn't ready for those meetings and for all of that when that happened. But, you know, it was, it was hard not to feel on some level like everybody was looking at me like this massive failure. Like I got back and I was like, yeah, I'm still doing theater. Yep, the Boone Shepherd books are happening. Yep, I've got a successful podcast, but because I felt like I should have been doing better than I was, there was this like horrible, insecure, gnawing part of me that was like, everybody's laughing at me. Everybody thinks I'm this massive failure. Everybody right, thinks so I'm, but, but the good thing was that, you know, the, the stuff that was going on at that time kept those feelings at bay long enough. And that's why it was mid 2018, like after movie maintenance ended, after Boone Shepard ended, or when Boone Shepard was about to end, right at the point where all of those things that I'd had to distract me and keep me focused had kind of, come to their natural conclusions and the other thing was you know like that was shortly after moonlight the stage play which you know at the time was our bitten by productions most successful show we sold out every we sold out every show we got great reviews it was a huge hit in terms of an independent show at a melbourne festival 
And yet we walked out and it was like, it was so prohibitively expensive that barely anyone made any money out of it. We walked out and it was like, all these people came and saw it. And it's not that, you know, I mean, you put on a play to, you know, to put on a play ultimately, but there was part of me that thought this is going to be huge. This is going to like change everything. And it didn't. And you kind of walked out of it and it was like, oh, cool. Now everyone goes back to their day jobs. We don't have enough money left over to actually tour the thing, which was the plan because it was so expensive. It did as well as it could have possibly done. And yet that still wasn't enough to take it to the next level, which is what I'd really wanted. And all of those things kind of combined, suddenly it was like, okay, what now? So that was kind of, yeah, I think that was kind of the, the moment where those, those gnawing insecurities and that like that biting sense of imposter syndrome that you, you know, every creative kind of has in the back of their head really started to become almost overwhelming. This may seem like an unfair question, but do you think it was important for you to have that moment in 2018? 100%. Like 100%. Because like, and it came at the right moment, you know, because I, I really do believe that like, I really do believe that like a hugely important part of any creative's journey is having some kind of sense of delusion, right? Like some kind of, you know, I call it delusion goggles. Like, like this, this it, it was like, when we did Reunion, I remember going around the city, putting up posters for that play. Now, the poster for the play was the four cast members sitting in a gutter, staring balefully at whoever was looking at the poster with like Reunion by Gabriel Bergmoser written on it and the details of where it was on. Didn't tell you anything about what the play was about. I wasn't a name. You know, Bitten by Productions wasn't a name. Reunion wasn't something that was going to grab people's attention. But in my head... There was no part of me that thought, hang on, are these posters actually going to like make any difference? Right. Like there was no point, there was no part of me that thought, who is going to look at this and say, yeah, I want to go see that? Because like who would? And, but it, it didn't occur to me. In my mind, I was just like, oh, I'll just get out there and people come and see it. And that's because, you know, I was just sort of thinking, oh, I'll just keep putting stuff out there and things will happen without ever seriously thinking about how would it happen. And that, that kind of delusion, I think, went on for a long time. And, you know, but then it's like when you hit that moment, like in 2018, where the delusion falls away and you're like, what have I got? I've got a bunch of independent plays that have done really well in their sphere, but ultimately are still independent plays. It's not, you know, a career as such. I've got three published books that have done okay for what they were. I've got a podcast that was pretty successful for a few years, but is now over. And that's it. And that's kind of the moment where that delusion of kind of thinking, oh yeah, I'm a word. And you know, like I'd, I'd managed to kind of get myself into the sphere of being like, I am a working writer. I'm making money doing freelance. I was making money from the podcast. I was making a bit of money from Boone Shepard and the plays. And altogether, it was kind of just enough to get by and doing a bit of creative writing tutoring at the same time. But when it got to that point, I was like, this isn't really being a writer, you know? Like it's not, it's not living life as like a working writer the way I want to be doing it. And yeah, that, that's when kind of, you know, delusion is great up until a point because it's like, it's, there's this line in... Um, because if, if you're not deluded, you'll never try. That's the point I was getting at. If you're not deluded, you're never going to try. And there's a great line in one of my favorite books where um, a character's talking about the old Roadrunner cartoons and talking about the bit where the Roadrunner runner would be ch being chased by Wile E. Coyote and he'd run out over the cliff and he'd keep running and then he stops halfway and he looks down and he falls. And the character says, would the Roadrunner have fallen if he hadn't looked down? And I think there's like, I think there was like a really poignant grain of truth in that because I genuinely believe that anybody who would pursue the creative arts as a career, if they knew 
how much realistically had to go into it to get somewhere. And they knew how many disappointments, how many failures, how many humiliations, how many times you would feel like you were rolling that boulder to the top of the hill only to see it roll down again. I think most of us would never try, would 100% never try. And you need, you genuinely need some degree of delusion without actually thinking through the logistics in order to make that effort in the first place. You seem to have covered some of this also in one of your plays that you put together. And I don't know the timing, so correct me if I'm wrong, whether it's come after or before, but the Lucas conundrum. Yes. Which is an, a satirical look at Hollywood yeah, yeah, and yeah. the failings of Hollywood, but also from the, it's about a feature director who's had a huge hit many years ago and has subsequently had a poor run of films and is in that period where he may have one last shot to sort of make it. And one of the debates that they have during the play is the artist's need to be remembered and how important that is for him to be remembered. How important is it for you? And do you think that has weighed on you as you've gone through this experience? I mean, you're still extremely young in your career, but did that weigh on you when you get to 2018? Not, not, not so much. I mean, somebody once said to me, a friend of mine, and it was one of the most challenging questions I think anybody ever asked, where somebody was like, if you knew... If you knew that as an artist, you would not be recognized during your lifetime, but you would be discovered after your death and you would become huge and well-remembered and well-loved after your death, but during your lifetime, you wouldn't be, would that change how you approach things? And I was like, I genuinely don't know. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, there's, there is a line in, in my play Heroes where, you know, and it's something that I still believe in where I talk about validation. And one of the characters is talking about validation. And everybody says to you, you know, don't worry about validation. You don't need people's validation. I'm like, yes, you do. You 100% do. Because you need to like, I mean, otherwise, how do you know that what you're doing is worthwhile? Or how do you know that it's making a point or that it's having an effect on somebody or that it's like, it's it's genuinely worth the time you put into it? Like you 100% need validation. Otherwise, it may all actually be delusion. Exactly, exactly. And that's it. Like that's... Because delusion, can, like I said before, delusion can only take you so far, and that's where you need at least some degree of validation. I mean, something stuff like when you stop, you know, that was somebody once put it really well. It's a hand pulling you out of the water before you drown, and you you need at least some of those moments, even if it's somebody just tweeting you and saying, "Hey, man, I read your book and I really liked it." You need just those little things to kind of keep you going, and that. But like, in terms of like being remembered, I mean, it w- would be nice, but. I'm also like, there's, there's a selfish part of me that is like, I'm not going to be here to enjoy it though. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, so, I mean, obviously like it would be amazing, but like, I, I guess like for somebody who writes a huge amount about legacy, I don't think that much about it because I mean, there are so many brilliant writers in the world and only a handful of them are going to be remembered a hundred years after they're dead. And I don't have enough faith in my abilities to think I'm <laughs> going to be one of them. <laughs> like, you know, I would, I would love to think that, you know, I can, I can make a, a good and fruitful and satisfying career out of entertaining people while I am here. But I don't know if I mind that much about the prospect of my work continuing to do that after I'm gone, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, let's look at the great big hands of validation that have lent down and pulled you out of the water for 2019. Now, at the time of recording this, we are six months away at least or more um, from the publishing of your first in a two-book series so far, 
with HarperCollins, which is in Australia to be called The Hunted. Yes. And overseas to be called Sunburned Country. It might end up being The Hunted overseas as uh, well, but that's all up in the air at the moment. Sure. We'll come yeah. back in eight months and see where yes, we're at. See where we land. <laughs> but more importantly, I mean, this book has really thrown you into a whole new world of creative uh, opportunities because it's also been picked up in the States and it's been acquired for development by producers. And when I say development, we're talking film here yep. by producers Roy Lee, who's previously been a producer for the It horror series, and John Burke, who has worked across the DC films. Yes. So this is a huge coup for you. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where I think I occasionally have moments where I break into uncontrollable giggles when I sort of think, oh, my God, like this has happened. But it's, yeah, it, it, it's enormous and it's been gigantically life-changing. And it was like, and I think in a weird way it's like, when I talk about, you know, that, that I guess, you know, using to use screenwriting parlance, so, you know, my, my all is lost moment in mid-2018. One of the th reasons that that, one of the reasons I hit that moment was that, you know, we've talked about Windmills. Windmills was the project that I had been working on for a long, long time. You know, I mean, since I was in high school and I've been doing different versions of it. And when it won the use of, it was one of the things that I think I genuinely believed even subconsciously for a long time, that windmills would be the one that made me. You know, windmills would be the thing that got me the big book deal or got me the film deal or whatever it may be, you know, whatever whatever making it looks like, which is never, it's, it's not that easy a thing to define. But it was one of what, what kind of, one of the things that led to this moment in mid-2018 was my current agent, Tara, had read a couple of versions of windmills and, you know, um, Tara basically said to me in her very gentle but very firm way, it's not there. It's just not there. And at the same time, Windmills had been on submission with Matchbox Films. And, you know, it had taken me a long time to get it through the door at Matchbox. Like, you know, I, I thought that I'd kind of tried to get it to them right after the Usinov. I tried to, you know, anybody who knows Matchbox knows that it's the, probably the biggest and most roundly successful production company in Australia. And I had some connections there and basically... For a long, long time, I'd been really trying to get it through the door at Matchbox. And finally, like early 2018, they'd been like, we will take it and we'll officially assess it for production. And I was like, you know, yes, finally. Like, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, that script, obviously, like, you know, it, it had had success and it had kind of, and you know, then I was kind of thinking, you know, the novel might take off and, you know, I'd worked so hard on the novel and I was so confident with it. And within a week, both Matchbox and Curtis Brown were like, it's not there. <laughs> and that was kind of very genuinely like, a shock to the system because I'd again this delusion again, like I'd really led myself to believe this would be it. And once I realized it wouldn't be, it was almost liberating because it led me to work on The Hunted. And The Hunted was, you know, I'd written it originally as a short story called Sunburnt Country. Um, I'd really enjoyed writing that and I'd really kind of fallen in love with one of the characters in that and I thought I want to expand this into a bigger novel and potentially the start of a series. But I mean you had also converted into a um, not a web series but a podcast series well, as well didn't you? Oh kind of it was um it was done as one of the episodes of Movie Maintenance Presents which was the radio play audio drama spin-off right. of the Movie Maintenance podcast I was on so that was just a, a couple of actor friends of mine read the short story novella so that kind of, you know, and, and the reaction to that, it kind of led me to think, hey, maybe there is something here. But, you know, so so I was sort of thinking, all right, well, what else do I have? And I kind of looked at Sunburnt Country and I was like, well, I'm just going to do this. And I wrote it 
I mean, I used a lot of the material from the original short story, but then I expanded, I rewrote, I extended the whole thing, but it didn't take me very long to kind of put it together. And I eventually had, you know, a 42,000 word novel, novella, it wasn't very long. And I kind of just sent that to Tara and I was like, it's so full on and violent and extreme. She's either going to tell me to piss off or she'll at least know that I can do something different. And then that was what led them to sign me. And even then Tara was like, just so you know, like I don't think any of the big publishers are going to go for this because it is extreme. I mean, Tara had got me to do some rewrites on it to kind of bulk up the word count and everything and deepen some of the characters and the ideas. So I did that and then she was like, I don't think any of the big publishers are going to go for it. And then next thing, two book deal with HarperCollins, John Berg and Roy Lee and Greg Silverman come in and suddenly it's like this. And that all happened within the space of a few weeks. And it was just like, it was, you, you almost like, you don't dare to think stuff like that is going to happen. Of, of course you don't. And it was, you know, when when uh, Jerry, who sold the rights in LA, the film rights, when I was on the phone to him before he went out with it and he was sort of talking about the names he was planning on sending it to, I was like, no, no way. Like, absolutely no way. And when Roy Lee's name came up, I was like, that, I mean, you, like, it is the most successful horror movie of all time. Like, you know, and he's also produced, I mean, the How to Train Your Dragon films, which I adore, uh, The Disaster Artist, The Ring, which the was Ring. one of my favorite movies yep. growing up, like so much. And and you don't, you it, the fact that it getting in front of somebody like him was a possibility was incomprehensible. And yet, like, very – and the idea of HarperCollins, like, the – I mean, you know, not only are they, you know, one of the most well-known, famous publishers in the world, but, like, in terms of what they've published, I mean, The Serious Unfortunate Events or um, Song of Ice and Fire, like, some of my all-time favorite book series. And the, the idea that, like, I, I could be under a roof with – the titles that inspired me so enormously, again, incomprehensible. And yet it it somehow happens. And I still don't quite know how. So so but, let me ask you this then. I mean, are you ready to be labelled as, say, in eight months, six months' time, once the press circuit really begins for you with the launch of The Hunted, both here and overseas, to be labelled an overnight success after having worked on it for 12 years? Because... I, I, I suppose what I'm really asking, are you gearing yourself up for the new personality you may perhaps have to become? <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, because, I don't know, I I genuinely think that if, if this had happened three or four years ago, I, I don't think I would have been able to deal with it. Like, I think it would have instantly gone to my head. I think I would have been like, you know... Yep, I'm set. Pretty much everything I thought when the Usenov happens and then didn't. But having had a few of those really stark disappointments, my whole ethos through the negotiation period, through everything was, this is all great, but it could all fall apart in a second. And I have to remember that. And I have to kind of always keep that in the back of my mind. It's like, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a sure thing until the signature's on the page and the money's in the bank, you know? And even then, it's not really a sure thing until the book's on the shelf. So... So, you know, and, and I know that having seen things that I thought were sure things fall apart before, quite a few of them. So, so with that in mind, you know, I, I've made sure that I haven't, you know, I'm still doing independent theatre. I'm still working with Bitten by Productions. I'm still writing plays with them. My, my day-to-day life hasn't changed that much. And while I know that it undoubtedly probably will when, when everything kind of happens next year, I still may perhaps naively think that I do want to just kind of keep doing what I'm doing now. And I do believe that I probably can continue to do both. But I don't, I mean, 
Well, let, 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 me, let me interrupt you to sort of ask this then. For you, what does success look like? To me, it's, it's honestly nothing more or less than just being able to write my stories, to have hopefully an audience for them who appreciates them, and to be able to make a living off that, that, you know, allows me to live quite comfortably. That, that's it. That's really all it is. And it took me a while to realize that, you know, when I talked earlier about, you know, wanting that nebulous idea of making it. But over the years, I was kind of like, nah, that's, I don't like it. So I don't need to be Stephen King. Like, I don't need, like, you know, and I, I couldn't be anyway. You know, you need to be incredible to be him. But, like, I would be perfectly happy if, like, I got to a point where it was just like, hey, you know, there's an audience who enjoys my stuff and I'm making enough money to get by and I get to sort of, you know, I still get to do theatre. I still get to write novels. You know, I don't, uh, for those who read The Hunted, you know, or have read The Hunted, um, I, I wouldn't want to... I really hope that I don't just become somebody who writes horror thrillers of that ilk. Like I'd love to continue writing different things. I'd love to be somebody who's at least known for being fairly diverse in terms of what they explore. And if if I can do all of that, then that's probably enough, you know, <laughs> like that's, which and I say probably enough as if like it's such a small, humble goal, which it's not because, you know, the percentage of people who do achieve that is so small, but that's kind of what I've been working towards. And that's what I'll continue to work towards until it becomes you know, viable or a reality, I guess. Gabe, you very politely gave me a copy of The Hunter to read um, prior to publication, and it's obviously due out around June, July 2020? Yeah, June at this stage, I June. think, is what they're looking at. And, I mean, I found it to be an aggressively compulsive horror hostage thriller set in Outback Australia, and it has its sort of filmic references and influences all over it. I mean, it's, it's an extremely fast, involved, engaging read and very, very different to what I've seen of any of your other work. I'm more surprised, though, that it wasn't a screenplay first. Well, it's funny because my first conception of the story was that it would be a screenplay. And this is going back, you know, even pre, even like pre-Bitten by Productions. Like I first had the idea. Well, I mean, the idea sort of came from a few different places. Like, you know, one of, I remember it was a friend of mine who was backpacking across Australia who came back and he talked about, um, he basically talked about, stopping in this town and ending up staying with this family and everything about the family was just a bit weird. Like they kind of brought him in there and then like he kind of basically got the sense from the way that the father was talking to him that they were essentially trying to set him up with their teenage daughter but do it in a way that they could catch him out and then do it was it was really messed up and he was telling me this like story and talking about how like how creepy it was and how like he was just so unsettled. But apparently at one point in the night the father had gotten really drunk. And he'd started telling my friend this story about this town up the road that, you know, it's off the map and nobody really knows about it. And you have to take a couple of wrong turns to get there. And it's like this little town and you go there and you stop in the town and there's this man who runs the town and he'll invite you in and he'll set you up with a house. He'll set you up with a job and, you know, you get, he'll look after you and he'll take you to a barbecue and all of that. But once you're there, you're not allowed to leave. Wow. And apparently this guy was just telling my friend this story as if it was totally true. And it kind of like slowly came from... This, you know, and I mean, I, I grew up in a country town, as we've spoken about earlier, but in every small country town, I think there's the jokes about the country town up the road. Like in Mansfield, it's a little town called Tolmy up the road. And we all joke about, you know, Tolmy being a bunch of inbred hicks and everything. They're not, Tolmy's lovely. But, you know, so every, I think every town has that story about that other place up the road that whether jokingly or not, you just don't go. And that's kind of what it grew from. And I thought that could be like a really cool screenplay. And for, for years, I'd had it in my head as something I would write as a screenplay, and it was something I was going to sort of do at some point. But it was when, funnily enough, like one of my co-hosts on Movie Maintenance, who had just self-published a book or a novella, came to me and said, what if the four of us who are on the show all write a horror story set in a different season, 
and self-publish that and like a book that we can just sort of sell to friends and everything at the time. I was like, yeah, sure thing, why not? And that kind of gave me the impetus to write the original novella slash short story because the season I got given was summer. And it was kind of when I when I sort of, the, the reason I wrote it as a novel and not a screenplay is the very succinct answer to the long-winded backstory is that I was like, well, as a screenplay, I'll write it. I can send it to my agent or whatever, but it's probably going to sit in the drawer for ages and like nothing's going to happen. But if I write it as a short story, you know, at least I can record it and I can put it out there. At least I can, you know, give the book to people. You know, it might actually get out there. People might read it. So that was that was why. That was the only reason it became a, a novella and not a screenplay. And then after that, you know, when I had, I was in talks with Curtis Brown, I was like, well, I can maybe extend it to a novel and see where that goes. But originally, yeah, it was 100% conceived as a screenplay. So it kind of, the fact that I've written the screenplay for the film adaptation I guess is really the whole process coming full circle in a way, you know, because that was originally absolutely what it was meant to be. And for that reason, I do think the novel does retain that cinematic influence. And I wanted it to be fast paced. I wanted it to be something you could knock over in a night. I mean, the the truth of it is, and I know as I'm a big reader myself, there are so many books out there that people recommend you. And there are so many books that like are the thing you're supposed to read. And, you know, some of them you pick up and it takes you a while to get into them. And then that means you kind of, you know, you drag your feet a bit about reading it and then you don't end up reading it or you don't end up reading other things. And, you know, time gets in the way. And I was like, I want to write something that just like starts in the first chapter and it just goes from there. And, you know, it's what, 65,000 words. It's not a long read. It's not that much longer than like the first Boone Shepherd in the grand scheme of things. But it's something that you can knock over in a night or two and just you know, something that just is designed to just have this relentless, frenetic, pulse-pounding pace that just does not let up until the final page. Gabe, I've never read a PDF with such ad- <laughs> absolute commitment in my life. Um, we, we have to wrap it up here, but I, I mean, I'm, I feel that we should really come back again in eight months' time, in 2020, yeah. when the book is finally ready to come out and we can get deep into the, the context of it. Um, except to say that, I mean, your slate of work that you have coming up seems to be just extraordinary for the year ahead. I mean, I'm so delighted and excited for you. When you look at this, you've got the potential of the development of Moonlight, doing something with that as as a musical in other areas. You've got a web series. You're looking at a new YA series set in a high school. Yes, yes. series of books. Uh, You've got the sequel to The Hunted already written in your back pocket. Yeah, which I'm profoundly insecure about. Like I'm currently (laughs) in the process of reading over it and making tweaks to send it, to submit it. And it's so different to The Hunted. Like, it's so, so different. And I'm looking at it thinking, you know, against that imposter syndrome, like I'm looking at it thinking, oh, God, okay, so I obviously managed to somehow get something right with The Hunted. And then I've done the stupidest thing possible by writing a sequel that has nothing in common with it. How is this going to work? Fantastic. <laughs> because I've, I've, have I forgotten the alchemy somehow, the accidental alchemy that somehow got The Hunted through the door? So, um, so yeah, anyway, I'm probably going to be pulling my hair out over that one for a while yet, but... Gabe, I'm I'm not convinced you don't pull your hair out over every project. You have to, right? (laughs) Gabe, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you today. And I mean, I I genuinely mean this. You may be the very first guest to actually have to come back just so we can keep going with this story. (laughs) Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gabe. Cheers. And you'll be able to purchase The Hunted on release in 2020 from all good and possibly evil bookstores. I can't wait for you to finally have a chance to read it. In the meantime, you can find a selection of Gabe's plays and short stories via his website, and you can purchase his Boone Shepherd Young Adult series right now in stores and online. Finally, you can also go and see Gabe's stage work via the Bitten by Productions website. 
You can also follow him on Twitter at GoberGMoser, that's G-O-B-E-R-G-M-O-S-E-R, an obviously a ridiculous name, and you can follow us at ConversationsWW. That's it for now. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.